Our third reading is from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 31. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, And said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands on his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in the hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thank you, Gareth, and good morning, everybody. Can I add my welcome, uh, particularly to those of you who may be here for the first time. We are delighted that you are with us. Um, Tim had briefed me that he was going to, in his children's talk, um, talk about going on holiday, so to fit in with that theme, I decided to dress, well, like a deck chair, really. <laughs> and um, I was going to cover myself up with a jumper, but it's just too warm, so... We live in what's called a hyper-aware society, full of multitasking, always connected. Information comes rushing at us all the time. And so the next 15 minutes, and that's the the short length of time I'm going to speak, affords us, us, each of us, a rare opportunity, the chance to draw breath and think about our lives. To help kickstart that process of quiet reflection, Let me read you some phrases from the very first chapter of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, I draw your attention to the very last phrase there. It crops up time and time again in Genesis 1. There was evening and then there was morning. It's a curious way to structure time, isn't it? In Hebrew culture, each day started at sunset, at dusk, went through the whole night, and then into the whole of what we would call the next day. And the reason they did that is found in Genesis 1, because creation begins in darkness and ends in light. The trajectory of time is from darkness to light, from evening to morning. The Romans invented a different way of measuring time. It was called the Gregorian calendar, and it's the one that we use today. So we tend to think of time running from morning to evening. Life starts off in the fresh dawn of a new day. It warms up as the sun climbs in the sky, and then it fades off into twilight and ultimately into the darkness of midnight. Now, the difference runs deeper than timekeeping conventions. It speaks to how our culture views the trajectory of life. There is the bright optimism of youth, then we reach the zenith of our powers and the prime of life, and then we slip into the twilight of old age. The poet Dylan Thomas wrote a famous poem called Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. He wrote the poem about his dying father. And in the poem, Thomas talks about how we face death. My shirt really doesn't fit in with that theme. But anyway, let's go with it. Some men, he says, are overcome by the futility of life because they have made no mark in the world. Others cry out because they could have done so much more if their time had not been cut short. And each verse of the poem ends, and many of you will know this, it ends with this really famous line, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Is that how we should view our lives? We're born... We breathe and laugh, we groan and struggle, and then we die? Is the only answer to our mortality to rage, rage against the dying of the light? The Bible holds out a much better answer. In the Old Testament, the prophets speak of the hope of an eternal day. Uh, So think of the prophecy of Isaiah. It starts off in darkness, 
You know that famous uh, line we uh, quoted at Christmas? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. But when you get to the end of the book, we hear him say, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. We have moved from evening to morning. Or in the language of the Song of Songs, we wait for that moment when the day breaks and the shadows flee away. The prophet Malachi rounds off the whole Old Testament canon with the hope that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And these Old Testament hopes, says the New Testament, were no mere pipe dreams. They were promises made by God. And as Tim taught the children a few minutes ago, God keeps his promises. A really good way to understand the Easter story is that it is that moment when time started to move from evening to morning. The resurrection of our Lord is the hinge of history. It is the pivot on which eternity turns. We shouldn't think of the resurrection of Christ as a a mere anomaly, as a big blip in a world which never changes. It's better to think of the resurrection as that moment when everything flipped around. Reality got reconfigured. Instead of a story, story that moves from morning to evening, we now are in a story that moves from evening to morning. Now that seems like an impossible tale. The level of physics, the universe is running down. The second law of thermodynamics will inexorably turn the universe into a gigantic microwave soup. Or think of our bodies. As children, we ran and climbed trees and fell off bicycles. But the future of the body is described using words like arthritis or dementia or hospice. So how could the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ possibly reverse that process and give us a new story that moves from evening to morning? Psalm number 90 was written by Moses. And he describes life in a way that Dylan Thomas would understand. Talking of life, he says, In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. But, says Moses, life was not meant to be like that. We all die after 70 or 80 years. Why? Because of God's judgment on sin. For all our days pass away under your wrath, he says. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Now, if Moses is right, then the way to solve the problem of death is to solve the problem of sin. And for the rest of this talk, I'm going to follow Moses' logic by setting out how the Easter story solves the sin problem and then the death problem. Now, I am conscious that many non-Christians today, and if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're incredibly welcome. And I understand that you might get frustrated with when the concept of sin is introduced. So rather than have an abstract conversation about that idea, let's just consider the Easter story itself for a few moments. I'd like you to take a few seconds and think hard about the kindest the most gentle person you have ever met. Maybe it was a loving grandparent or someone who poured love and wisdom into your life. And we all value qualities like that, don't we? Things like kindness or humility or patience or gentleness. Well, says the Bible, God is the source of all those lovely qualities. And so when the Son of God entered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the heart of God displayed in perfect humanity. Paul explains it this way. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just think about how Jesus treated other people. In a racist world, 
Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. In a materialistic world, he never ignored the poor or the powerless. He had the humility to, to wash his disciples' feet. He spent entire days being crushed by crowds of people, healing them, often without getting a word of thanks. He never lost his temper. He never told a lie. So how do we explain the crucifixion? In the words of a famous hymn, Why, what hath my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight sweet injuries. Yet all his deeds their hatred feeds. Imagine you were a visitor uh, to Jerusalem and you get caught up in the crowd that took Christ to his crucifixion site. You would watch this exhausted, beaten man stumbling under the weight of the cross he had been forced to carry. The crucifixion itself was carried out with brutal efficiency by the Roman soldiers. And all around you would hear the sound of jeering and screamed insults. But I suspect that what would astonish you the most was that it was the ruling elite who were leading a lot of the mockery. Now, these were intelligent, dignified members of the establishment. And yet with pitiless cruelty, they mock a dying man in front of his weeping mother. The sheer viciousness of their actions says something profound about the human heart. You see, respectable people like to think that they aren't too bad. But the unnerving thing about the cross of Christ is that if we're being honest with ourselves, the shocking behavior of humanity toward the Lord Jesus is all too human. We can all think of moments in our lives when cruel anger or pride or vicious jealousy or malice have erupted within our own hearts. In these moments, we see the truth of the Bible's analysis of the human condition. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. But now raise your eyes away from that jeering mob and look at the person hanging above the soldiers who are gambling for his clothes. The sheer nobility of his character can be seen underneath the bloodstains and the crown of thorns. But suddenly, without warning, as we read, the whole scene goes dark. At the moment when the sun should have been bright, shining most brightly, the whole land is covered in darkness. Day becomes night for three hours. In the infinite density of that moment, says Scripture, we behold the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. Christ was standing at the head of the human race, taking responsibility for all the sin in the world, taking responsibility for all the hurt and the heartache caused by the way we have treated each other. A few years ago, I had a conversation with a Muslim student, and he was very courteous, and he told me that he didn't believe in the Christian account of Jesus' death and resurrection. So I asked him, in Islamic thought, on what basis does God forgive people? And he thought for a few moments, and then he shrugged his shoulders, and he said, well, Allah forgives because he has the power to forgive. Can forgiveness be a product of power, I asked him? I said, imagine I was your next-door neighbor, and I habitually drive while under the influence of alcohol. And you plead with me to change my ways, because your children play on the street outside. But one evening, I drive home drunk, and I kill one of your children. Now, I said, suppose Allah forgives me, just because he has the power to forgive me. How would you feel? You'd be overcome by a sense of injustice, because God's action would attribute no value to your child. 
You see, I said to my student friend, in Christian thought, forgiveness is not about power. It is about atonement. It requires atonement. When a moral debt is incurred, it has to be paid. And during the three hours of darkness, we see God pay the moral debt which our sin incurred. God the Father and God the Son cooperate together. The Father gives the Son and the Son gives himself. And because the debt is paid, God can offer us a principled forgiveness. And so the problem of sin has been dealt with. But there was a bigger enemy to to be defeated. The enemy called death. We started off in this reflection thinking about our own mortality. And it is the resurrection of Jesus which allows us to see past our own death into the brightness of the eternal day. Humanity rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. And scripture tells us that happened at twilight. It was at twilight when the Lord God walked in the garden and issued that haunting cry, Adam, where art thou? But our first parents ran away. And as we watch Eve running away from God, we're seeing the beginning of the dark night of the human soul. But on resurrection morning, as Gareth just read to us, we once again find the Lord God walking in a garden. And this time, it is dawn. The twilight of Eden has become the morning of Easter Sunday. And this time, what do we see? We see a woman running towards him. As we watch Mary Magdalene clasp the Lord's feet, we're seeing fellowship between humanity and God restored. And Mary leaves that scene with her heart bursting with optimism and happiness. She knew that the trajectory of her life was assured. Her Savior was standing on the other side of death, so nothing could separate her from him, not even death. Evening was moving to morning. Without Christ, all you've got is Dylan Thomas. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. But, says Paul, Christ has brought life and immortality to light. We now know that death is not the end. Now, no sane person enjoys the process of dying. But death itself holds no fear for the Christian believer. I am intensely curious and not a little excited about the first few moments of my life after death. It's not that this life is to be despised. It's wonderful and interesting. But the best is yet to be. We are on an inexorable journey from evening to morning. And let me close by applying that truth to the heart of a suffering believer. I said just now that this life is wonderful and interesting, and usually that is true. But there are times when life is hard, even desolate. We enjoy the peace and tranquility and happiness of this scene. But brothers and sisters of ours in Sri Lanka have gone to heaven this morning. Hundreds more are injured. Sometimes life is desolate. Sometimes it feels like we're standing in the darkness. Perhaps it's the darkness of a mind oppressed by depression or a life weighed down by physical illness or tragedy. The prophet Habakkuk felt just like that. And in fact, at one point, it seems that he couldn't actually sleep. So he goes out of his house in the middle of the night and he walks the street of Jerusalem. He climbs the walls and stares out into the darkness. And he says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. You see, in the ancient world, 
Watchmen didn't have smartphones that they could switch on to tell the time. They couldn't say, okay, it's 3.30 a.m., I've got two hours to go. They just had to stand in the darkness and wait. They didn't know when the dawn would come, but they knew that it would come. They knew that evening would become morning. So with you, my brother, my sister. Right now you must stand in the darkness. But because of the Easter story, you can know for certainty that the dawn will come. The day will break and the shadows will flee away. The trajectory of your life stretches out into the farthest reaches of eternity. For now, well, take time to be grateful that your sins have been forgiven. Christ has dealt with them. And so, like Mary, even in the dark, your heart can overflow with optimism because our Lord has defeated death, so your fellowship with him can never be severed. And soon, evening will become morning. And that lesson isn't just for those who are suffering. Right now, if your life is wonderful and interesting, don't just refuse to reflect upon it. Don't fall in love with this present age. Live in such a way that your life only makes sense if there is life after death. As Paul puts it in Romans 13, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So we're done. Thank you for your courtesy in listening to me. We're going to have a final hymn, and then I will close in prayer.
Thank you again for coming. Uh, there is, uh, the cafe is open afterwards, available for tea and coffee. If you'd like to talk to me afterwards, I'd be delighted so to do. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that the events of Easter are not just some strange anomaly in a world that never changes, that just goes on day after day in a uniform way. We thank you that it represents the hinge of history, the pivot on which eternity turns. And we thank you because of that, that those of us who know and love you, our life trajectory moves from evening to morning. But despite all the difficulties that beset us and the desolate times that we sometimes have to go through, we know that the best is yet to be, that our lives stretch out into the furthest reaches of the eternal day. Our Father in heaven, we pray for those in this room who know and love you but whose lives are going very well at the moment. Help them not to live for this present age but to live lives that only make sense in the eyes of others if there is indeed life after death. And then, Father, for those who are suffering, who stand in the darkness and wait, we pray that you would give your people courage, that you would come alongside them and walk these difficult trails with them and confirm in their hearts the fact that God, when he makes a promise, keeps it. And so we thank you that our faith rests not on cleverly invented myths, but on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We give return thanks with grateful hearts for all that you have done for us in giving us forgiveness and healing and acceptance and hope. We ask now that you part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.